Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Wicked Garden Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. And on tonight's show, uh, this is a conversation that Garrett and I had back in July. We're just putting it out now. Sorry about the delay. I've moved. It's been a pretty complicated move. Finally set on end. But this conversation that we had in July was about Stephen Greer's witnesses that he had at his conference, uh, which I believe was done in maybe April or May of the year. It's a very interesting video. It's on YouTube, his whole conference. And he had some whistleblowers of his own. So this came out around the time that the Grush interview started getting some play. He actually had a total of about five witnesses that came up, uh, had some interesting things to say. This is a recap of us watching that and some other interesting interviews on the Sean Ryan show with uh, where he did. We went a little bit more in depth, Sean. Uh, If anybody hasn't seen the Sean Ryan show, it's fantastic. It's on YouTube as well as a regular podcast. And what we're referring to in this is uh, Sean Ryan's show number 65 with Stephen Greer, uh, number 66 with Michael Herrera, number 66 with DC Long. I don't know why he has all the numbers the same. And number 66 with Eric Hecker. So... Uh, there are three different interviews there. They're all with the same episode number 66, but Sean's show is fantastic. Garrett and I both love it. We did this little bit of a discussion on it, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Good evening. This is Frank Knight. May I introduce our co-editors for this edition of the Longines Chronoscope? Larry Lasseur, CBS News correspondent, and Kenneth Crawford, National Affairs Editor of Newsweek magazine. Our very distinguished guest for this evening is Admiral Richard E. Byrne. Antarctica Treaty of 1959. An agreement signed by 12 nations in which the Antarctic continent was made demilitarized to be preserved for scientific research. What do you think about that? I must say that Admiral Byrd, our guest tonight, is not only our greatest living explorer, but he's been an inspiration to countless Americans. Admiral Byrd, you've been to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Is there any unexplored land left on this Earth that might appeal to adventurous young Americans? Uh, Yes, there is. was also previously contracted by Raytheon Polar Services as a cook to work on a cat train that went across the ice, and he said the express purpose for him, I should say, for that team, working for Raytheon, was they were searching for missile site locations. They find out it's really usable, not only to live in, but militarily. idea of this being demilitarized is a load of baloney. But strangely enough, there's left in the world today an area as big as the United States that's never been seen by a human being. And that's beyond the pole on the other side of the South Pole from middle America. And it's, uh, I think it's quite astonishing because the government has really become interested. I tell you one reason they're interested. It's by far the most uh, valuable, important place left in the world for science. They gave us, yeah, told us the, the 30 second sign. We're all hooked up, ready to go. 
drum master's got his arm up getting ready to hit me in the back and then we see shuffling and i'm only one of 12 guys that i jump with every time he filed a classified uh, a classified complaint under oath and the intelligence community inspector general said that he found the complaint urgent and credible a guy from the back shuffles his way to the front and it's one of the escorts he is unmistakable you can't really you, you know yeah I think it gives weight to a lot of the people that have come forward and talked about having direct first-hand experience that should be investigated now. The van that they had us in, it didn't have any windows. As soon as the door opened, it, it looked like a little dump. That was a 45 degree concrete door. So we go inside, meet another escort in there, uh, take us to this freight elevator. One of the guys looks at my dad as saying to both of us, yeah, keep your head down, your eyes on the heels of the man in front of you, or you'll be shot. I get in there, and my dad's sitting at his couch, and everything is torn out, everything is gone. I was like, do you think this has something to do with Range 19? And he stood up, that man you saw, and he said, don't you ever mention that name to me again. And that was the last time that I got to spend any time face-to-face with my daddy. Invariably, the first reports were brought in by quiet and sober citizens like Frank Manor, father of ten children, a countryman, a hunting man, a man used to wooded swamplands by night. Frank Manor's UFO remained over his swamp more than four hours. His children saw it, his in-laws saw it, Residents of the area saw it. The police saw it. Oh, it uh, moved very rapidly at any speed or rather any direction it wanted to go. Why it could change and go to the right or the left or go crossways uh, without hesitating a bit. When you saw this thing take off, I mean, do you have any estimation of speed? How no, it was it was faster. It was the fastest thing I've ever seen. You're and, worried they're going to kill you. Yeah. The Whistleblower Protection Act that has been put forward in the National Defense Authorization Act, I mean, this is what it's for. And the gear that they had was black OTV vests. They had black camouflage utilities. They so had, what, what you're saying is there was there would have been no Mexican. They were professionals. Yes, there would have been no yes. Mexican standoff where no. if they fired, they're shooting into their other squad. They had they, they had perfect angles. Yes, they did. To where both sides could engage you. Yes, this is the video, it's called the Comburgus video, which is a close-up of a craft. So close that you can see the occupants. It is 100% real, and I was there as that was filmed. Well, now it's time. Now we're seeing that this is an issue that must be investigated. I can tell you from our point of view, it's something that just looked very unnatural and abnormal. What could somebody threaten you with to make you turn your back on your own child? I want to emphasize that we are currently in a state of war that people aren't realizing.
Awesome. Yeah, we wanted to, you know, get together and talk a little bit about um, these Greer uh, whistleblowers. Dr. Stephen Greer's whistleblowers, they're from his press conference that he had, which blew me away. It was a pretty good press conference. But as we all know, there's problems with Dr. Greer. You know, a lot of people poke fun at the CE5 thing. Yeah. And, you know, he readily admits um, that people do that. I've tried CE5 because why Why wouldn't you try it? Didn't have anything happen. And, you know, we, we know there's a lot of, lot of people who try it and actually charge people to go out and do it. And nothing happens. So it, it's a controversial subject. But I got to say, man, I was, and it, this is the weirdest thing. Everybody knows how this show's set up. You know, I'm pretty much a little bit more skeptical than Garrett is. But now, weirdly, we've changed positions. It's just a unique <laughs> situation, man. I, I know I know that, you know, you're definitely the skeptic of the of the two of us, but man, I just it's yeah, so I, I don't want to go over it. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to believe these guys, you know, but I'm having a hard time. <laughs> so when Greer had his press conference, he had he had a lot of interesting uh, things to say and he you know he we got to remember Greer did get used a lot by Obama the Obama administration Bill Clinton used him a lot oh yeah he's a yeah I mean he's an emergency doctor who you know got involved with UAP UFO type stuff and then sort of kind of made it his full-time gig and got out of practicing medicine but when Obama was in the White House Obama leaned on him pretty hard for information about UFOs and UAPs and also, John Podesta would have been around then. And, you know, the whole Clinton administration before that. I mean, he was like their go-to guy for independent investigation into this subject, you know. So I've always been on offense about him, especially because of the CE5 thing. But the press conference was very well done, very well organized. He made some pretty <coughs> big accusations about some defense contractors during it. And basically what he was saying was that there's been recovered air, there's been recovered off-world vehicles and these defense contractors have back-engineered their own version of each vehicle. So like the TR-3B we see, um, or we talk about a lot um, over the years, we've talked about the TR-3B, that's the triangle with the three outward lights and then the one light in the middle. He's basically saying that that is a, I think he said Raytheon, back engineered that and has their own version of it yeah and he's he's accusing basically raytheon northrop grumman those type of guys of having these vehicles back engineering them holding the technology for their own and doing nefarious things with them um and he brought in what he says is what he said it was five percent of the witnesses that he's had come forward so with the the guys that we were listening to in that press conference represents about 5% of the witness list of whistleblowers yeah. that he has. And he's not saying that, that those three have the strongest testimony or the weakest, just it's a small percentage, more or less. Right, right, exactly. And this has exactly. nothing to do with Grush. Grush is his own separate whistleblower situation. Right, as a matter of fact, <coughs> what Greer said was, Greer said that Grush has some things wrong. Um, he's actually gotten a couple things wrong by rushing out and you know coming coming out as much as he did we all know one of the problems with Grush is everything he tells you about is secondhand he hasn't actually had any experiences with any of this stuff he hasn't seen recovered craft he hasn't exactly. you know yeah so it's all secondhand hearsay t you know testimony with Grush 
and Greer is saying he's gotten a couple key points wrong. That was interesting. He didn't talk about that in the press conference, but he did talk about it in the interview he did on Sean Ryan's show. Yeah. And I, w- I would recommend everybody go and take a look at the interview with Dr. Greer that Sean Ryan did and also the three whistleblowers. So Garrett and I were going to take them one at a time and we were going to talk about these guys and we're going to save the best for last, right, buddy? Yeah, the one I can poke the most holes in. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, I mean, if I had to list them as who I was impressed with the most, I would say DC Long Story is the most impressive and probably hit me the hardest. So there's a, there's a couple things that ring true with his testimony, and if people haven't gone and seen it, like we're saying, go, go check out Sean Ryan's show, his interview with DC Long, and you can get caught up with us. We're not going to recap the whole thing. It, eventually, or in a nutshell, what he says is that his dad was a defense contractor. He also was in the military. He was in the Army. He jumped. He parachuted. What he says is that his dad was also a defense contractor who used to do work at a lot of different places, but a lot of work at Fort Bragg. What he says in the story is that uh, his father had called him up to help him out because he comes in and he helps him do measurements and that type of stuff. And they were doing what they call an underground shoot house. Yeah. That's what they were going in to do. They were going to redo one uh, a little differently. So they were going in to replace the rubber on the walls, that kind of stuff. And they were going in to take measurements and they met up with somebody at Fort Bragg and they were escorted down into um, what they called he didn't call it a secret chamber, but it sure did sound like a secret chamber. They said they went down a freight elevator. Um, and when he got off the freight elevator, he was told while on the freight elevator, keep your eyes straight forward. And if you look off to the side, we may have to shoot you. He said he took it as a joke. Um, and then he and his father started busting up laughing. But when he got off the freight elevator, um, they started to walk across the room and he looked and he saw a monolithic slab is how he described it. You know, who knows what this thing weighed. There's really good illustrations on Greer's press conference. And um, on this monolithic slab, there was a black box on top. And the monolithic slab was hovering about 12 inches off the ground by itself. Didn't, it wasn't suspended by any cables, wasn't lifted up by any cranes, nothing along those lines. This thing is just sort of kind of hanging in midair. And there was a humming noise and a humming sound as they got closer to it. So he noticed it out of the corner of his eye, and then when he got closer to it, he knelt down to actually take a look at it a little closer and acted like he was tying his shoe. That was the only part of his story that I thought, thought was a little bit suspect. It's a little bit too movie-ish for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, and, yeah. Yeah, well, what do you think about it? I mean, just so far, there's there's not much I would discount, but I, I do think we got to think about one thing is he's – He's active duty at the time, right? But he ain't doing his job. He's literally, he took leave to go to help, help his pops, who was yeah. also a defense contractor. And then they're going out to this range. Well, I mean, with the shoot houses. Range 19, by the way. Yeah, yep. range 19 is, I, I'm not familiar with Bragg. Honestly, I, I know about it, but I'm not familiar with the layout of it. Right. But supposedly, you know, like most bases, the ranges are, you know, outset from the main base, more or less. You got it. It's usually a drive out to them. Any yeah, he said it was to. a 10-minute van ride. Yeah, that's how most base layouts are. The ranges are right. almost on the outskirts. So he describes headed out in that direction, but he's in like a blacked-out van, so he doesn't he can't see exactly where he's going. He just has an idea of the direction he's headed. 
uh, he says when they finally get out of the van, you know, they jump out the back or whatever, and they're at a dump. So uh, that was an interesting part of it that I skipped over, right? Yeah, it, it essentially looked like a huge pile of trash, but there was a cement door that opened up, and they were able to drive the vehicle into there, get out of the vehicle, and then go to the freight elevator. Yeah. Now a lot I know what bunkers look like. I mean, it, it, most people can just look them up. They're bunkers that you can drive straight into, and they almost just look like a angle, like a angular thing sticking up out of the ground. But it's just right. an entrance, more or less. It's it's an underground entrance or an entrance into the side of something else. But it's easy to see anything like that on a map. You know what I mean? Uh, while it obscures a lot, you can't obscure the entrance a lot of times. You can camouflage it or make it hard to find. But you can find it on a map. And one thing that uh, I went to a few YouTube videos after this, and uh, there was already people that were ahead of me because I was thinking like, okay, first thing I'm going to do is open up a map and see what they're showing and what they don't show. Well, right. as you can imagine, with Google Maps, like a lot of military bases are you know, kind of uh, pixelated. You can't just zoom in on every base and just see exactly what's going on there. Or it may be old data, or it could be you know, data that's being used specifically at the request of the military um, right but uh people were already ahead of me i didn't really do much leg i didn't do much leg work on it but people were already looking up satellite images of brag looking for this dump with a bunker entrance and to my knowledge nobody's found anything okay but um that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist i'm uh, right. that sounds exactly like something especially uh shoot houses in general if if you know if any of our audience members don't know exactly what that is it's it's where you're practicing clearing rooms, more or less, or where you do tactical training. It's set up, you can set it up like a building layout, and it's made to where if you're training for a certain area, it, nothing in that room is permanent. You can always reset it up and have carpenter, carpenters come out to design it a certain way to, to fit your tactical training. So if you know the layout of a building that you're training a group of guys for, you could set up that exact layout so they have it place to practice before they actually get there exactly and uh yeah they're usually really it's not state-of-the-art it nothing looks it doesn't look really cool in there it, it looks really junky and most shoot houses look super <laughs> junky like they've been ran through people kicking holes in the walls and there's a lot of plywood uh it's it's not great looking and usually they're in training villages which are dumps so that actually check kind of checks out for me um Okay. Most, most of the the shoe houses we trained in anyway were literally like at ranges or in dumps that were you know basically made into these small villages where we could train, and so they it it was super junky. I'm not saying it was a landfill by any means, but uh, lots of trash, lots of uh just random pieces of junk, old rusted out cars, uh, lots of really trashy looking areas. But that's just is literally just for training. And that's how they described the area when they got out, which actually makes sense. Because that, that right. exactly... And to be specific, to be even more specific, he said it looked like a trash dump. Yeah. The so, outside of it. Right. So if people can imagine you go to a landfill, that's what this thing looked like. Yeah, but the whole the whole story about when they actually get in there and they're coming off the freight elevator. And, you know, you got a guy in front of you saying, just walk towards me. The lights are only between them and the guy that they're supposed to be walking towards. So... You know, if somebody says, you know, walk straight towards me, don't look left or right, chances are, like, they're not going to. I, I wouldn't have the balls to sit down and try to tie my shoe and peek around. Because if no, they said I they're going to shoot you, it's, it's probably likely. 
It's probably likely, whether you know him or not. Another thing that really stuck out about his story that like definitely checked some boxes for me as far as being legit is that his pops was, you know, he was bidding on these contracts, but they weren't public bids. And he also had, uh, he did a lot of hunting with uh, these guys that were awarding the contracts. That's yeah, something they, that they were <laughs> that's something that definitely yep. is a thing. That's definitely a thing. Um, Absolutely, it is. Yeah, I've seen it everywhere I've ever done business. So if you, if any, if anybody listening to that thought like, oh, that's strange. Like I don't think that's strange at all. I thought that was. No. There's a lot of uh, people speculating that that was just weird in itself, but that was one of the only things that sounded really legit about it to me. Yeah, it certainly did. <laughs> There's a lot of that. I mean, you need to establish relationships. You know. Th- th- you, you go hunting with somebody, you learn how to trust them pretty quick. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it rang true for me too, man. And I've seen it in business when, you know, when I was selling the casinos and all those other big companies, you know, there's a lot of guys, you know, for that it was golf. But it makes a lot of sense that these guys who are all soldiers would be into the hunting thing. Absolutely. Yeah. At yeah. the places they describe going. He described going specifically, like talking about going down to Arkansas. There's so many ranches set up down in Arkansas for hunting. Yep. It makes so much sense. Yeah, it really did. It rang true for me, too. Yeah, so that did not that did not seem like a red flag to me at all. But the, the bending down to tie your shoe, like that, you're right. It does kind of seem like a movie situation. Right. But I feel yeah, like, like, you know, unless the guy had a death wish, he'd probably just walk forward. And to be more right. specific, if those guys are really wanting to, you know, make sure they didn't look to the side they'd they'd probably get hooded which if you know people don't know what i'm talking about you literally get a bag put over your head like you can breathe out of it you know what i mean but it's just a blinder so um surprised that didn't happen but you know off to his left or somewhere you got this giant monolithic slab being moved around like i i don't know what to think of that i don't even know if i would consider it uh you know uap or ufo activity to me what it it, the first thing my mind went to was a lot of people trying to figure out how the pyramids were built. You know what I mean? And right, uh, right. You know, there's all these theories saying that, like sound and vibration were used to basically like levitate these giant slabs, more or less. And that's kind of what I imagined was happening off to his left. And I don't, I don't know. I just there's if if you're looking down for three seconds, it what in trying to get all this information. You're seeing these black boxes on top of the the boulders and the slab that's a lot to take in in three seconds and maybe yeah. he didn't see exactly what he what he thought he saw but i'm not discounting the rest of his story i i i believe he did probably see something he wasn't supposed to but i don't know what well here's the weird part about it too right he also said that um off to so he saw feet underneath the slab on the other side yeah so that's how he knew it was actually you know up in the air and then also off to the right of that there was a huge boulder that was also it also had a black box on top of it it was also levitating and there was a guy that was spinning it like you would spin a top and it was staying on its axis and staying at the same level and just spinning around they all had clipboards they all had he, he described them as having white lab coats and basically he was describing them setting up doing some type of experiment and he talks about a low hum and he could feel this hum in his chest so it fits a lot with what you were talking about with the vibrations. Yeah, and that's just where my mind went with it. But what's even right. more bizarre is, so it, they get past that hangar area, and then they actually get down to where they're going to be doing the contract work for the shoot house. They 
take their measurements or whatever. He says no more than about 10, 30 minutes go by, and they're leaving the way they came in, and the whole hangar's empty. <laughs> you know? And I got to give the Sean Ryan, the guy's a class act to begin with, but his very first question was like, are you sure? Did you check your time? Like, because he's thinking, right, you know, like a missing right. time situation. Like, you just don't empty a hangar like that, especially when there's huge slabs. And I feel like it was almost like he was part of an experiment. I don't think maybe a psyop. Yeah, possibly. That's how, that's what I'm getting from it. That's a good thought. That's a very good thought. And it, and basically, what happens is they lead them back out of there and they go back to the headquarters. The guy who's there that knows them and knows his father, asks them to sign an NDA. And they laugh about it and refuse to do it. And there's kind of a little bit of tension, but the guy's like a hunting buddy, right? So the guy goes, all right, all right. You know, if he does, and he's like, I don't need to do that. You know, like in other words, trying to say, I'm not going to say anything about it, but they really want him to sign this NDA and he just doesn't do it. And within a few days, his father's shop is closed down. All his equipment is confiscated he goes to visit his father and his front door is kicked in he says to his father do you think this is about range 19 and his father says them don't you ever effing say that name to me again yeah and he and his father get in a tiff and they get a little bit angry with each other and that's kind of the last time he sees his father healthy yeah because his health starts to go he winds up losing over 100 pounds and he finally sees him in the hospital on his deathbed yeah it was a terminal situation yeah so it's like this it's like this sad story about him and his father that's some of the interesting part of it and then he goes on to describe also a when he goes back to live duty he's doing the jump and he gets injured but he's actually medical doubt but the reason he got injured is because somebody you could probably describe this better than i could they're jumping and somebody I guess ties a rope around his neck as he's ready to jump. Yeah, uh, almost. What happens is is that he says he's jumping with the same twelve guys or so his entire career, which you know could be. I mean, it that's rare for one thing. Those guys are going to change, um, right? You know, from your jump school all the way up through your career and where your station is going to change every time because you're not going to be stationed with the same guys for you know course of however many years you're in unless you're doing a very short enlistment but uh he says that he saw one of the escorts on the aircraft and that was a red flag for him and what they were doing was static line drops so what that is the difference between that and like regular power drop ops cable that runs the length of the fuselage and you're already hooked into it so what happens is you're not it's it's not like skydiving in the traditional sense where you're jumping out of an airplane and pulling your chute what you're doing is you're as soon as you jump your chute is attached to that cable that runs up the fuselage of the aircraft. So you're, everybody's clipping into that in a row. And once one jumps out, it his chute's automatically pulled. So there's right. no, you don't have to manually deploy your chute. It's automatically, it's it's gravity deployed as soon as you jump out because you're clipped into that cable. So what he says is that the cable came loose. He was the very last one to jump, which, uh, you know, there's, there's always somebody called a jump master. And I don't know if he's saying that the uh that that escort he saw previously was the jump master is that's what it sounds like he was describing yeah, but yeah. basically it cut him like off that was what he was saying but basically cut him off and somehow managed to the static line the cable that i said runs up the length of the fuselage was able to disconnect that somehow so what happened was instead of the cable pulling your chute 
what happens was he pulled the cable out with him, which eventually pulled his chute, but he had a longer drop than everybody else. Like, again, with the static line drops, your chute's being pulled as soon as you hop out of the aircraft. But if the cable comes out with you, then it's not, obviously. You have a longer to go, and there's going to be... <laughs> I've never even heard of that happening. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I've never heard of that cable disconnecting. Right. But it sounds like the Jumpmaster slash Escort, who we previously seen, cut him off. So instead of jumping last, forced him to jump last and also had that cable disconnect at the very end, which right. you know could have killed him. They were at low altitude. It was a low altitude jump. Yeah, so, and that's, that's the thing. Like, most static line drops are low altitude. That's the whole point of it. It's, to, it's right. to get you on the ground as soon as possible. So if you have 900 feet, yeah, your chute's deployed, you know, before you get to 600 feet normally. But because of what happened to him, maybe didn't deploy till around 300 feet. And, you know, if 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 the chute didn't deploy at all, he obviously he wouldn't have made it. Nobody's going to survive a fault like that. But uh, that's the best way I can describe what I believe he was trying to describe. Yeah, and he breaks his he he kind of he kind of doesn't describe his injuries enough for me, but he says that he broke his neck, I guess a little bit or screwed his neck up. Yeah, he said um, he said he quote unquote, it snapped his neck. Well, if somebody's neck snapped, they're dead. So I don't know what exactly what he's talking about. Maybe he tore like tweaked something somehow, and, right. and that ended up leading to a medical discharge of some sort. Right. <clears throat> so what do you think? Well, I think the biggest problem I have with that whole story is why not just sign the fucking NDA act? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, but I, I could see, see, there's that weird, weird part of you're you're working with someone that you went hunting with and they're kind of friends, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you mistakenly want to show your loyalty and say man you don't even need to get me to sign that i'm never going to say anything you know what i mean but you don't say it that way you go come on man i'm not going to sign that you know when you're trying to express that look man we're you know i'm in this with you and i I could see that happening you know i I definitely could see that happening because the the weird thing is when you when you meet people that you're friends with and then you go to do business with them it's always always weird yeah okay it's something you you got to Approach very cautiously if you're gonna do it. I mean, right. I feel like it's better to just avoid it. Period. But that makes sense in a normal business transaction. But when you have uh, when contractors are involved, man, like that signature, so you got to get those fucking signatures, man. Like it's it's. Yeah, and not... I wonder if they've did if they've signed NDAs before, right? Like if they've done it before and signed them before. Well, I guarantee they both had had to have signed thousands of NDAs. Just him right. being so in the military, no that one. and then right. this guy is a you know is a is a federal contractor. They're going to be signing NDAs all over the place. You know, right. I I can't tell you how many we don't even read. It. I can't tell you how many NDAs I've signed over the years that I haven't even read because it's just they expect you to just put your signature to it right away. And even actually just taking that second to look over it is almost uh, it doesn't look good, honestly. Yeah, no. You know? Nobody's gonna, nobody's going to read those things. Yeah, so if you have your federal guy, it, first of all, your hunting buddies, you're getting these contracts awarded to you based off of your hunting report, even though they're, that's never going to come out that way, but that's how it is. But if that's the case and he's asking to sign an NDA and you don't, well, that's the biggest problem in this whole story to me. That outshines the monolithic slab by a mile to me. Right, right. Yeah, I, I will... I will say, you know, 
I agree with you on that. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I was going to tell you something about when when you're doing business with somebody sometimes and, and you get in that weird situation. Um, you know, it, it is awkward. But, yeah, I mean, why not just sign the NDA? And then the other thing, too, I wanted to mention that I, from my business experience, it's not unusual for the government to have a really hard time getting people to bid on their jobs. We were actively recruited um at several companies that i work for it's a bid on government work and part of the problem with government work is you don't get paid in a timely fashion there's a shit ton of paperwork that you have to do that's extra that you can't charge for so if people are thinking it's some kind of it's not easy it's definitely it's not easy at all the hell is that hold on dude yeah i heard that whatever it was hey trace where you at are you making noise <laughs> Yo, I thought you were in that barn. I was like, "Hey, man, house. there's more than no, furniture I'm in that just, fucking barn." <laughs> I'm not used to. It. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, I can hear that on my end. I was like, "What the hell is going but, on yeah, here?" The there? point, the point I was trying to make was <laughs> getting back to that. Now, the point I was trying to make was that when you do, when you don't think it's like some special thing to bid on government work, it sucks. It sucks doing it. You know, a lot of times the reverse bid situations, which means that you basically whoever's most desperate gets the job it's not unusual to be recruited to do government work now to do government work for in that type of situation yeah that's very specialized but you know it's not some kind of like red herring for me you know the whole government work thing i mean we we used to get recruited all the time to do some weird print jobs for the government they would actively recruit us they would be like look we want to you know put you in our list and have you come up when we've got some really weird ticket that needs to be printed or something mm-hmm. or some yeah. thermal piece of paper. So it's, it's not unusual. Is all I want to say. Now nah, it's not, it's just experience. a different, it's just a different world as far as business goes. Cause there is so much, you know, red tape and it's a bureaucratic nightmare. Just even getting a contract sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the payout's pretty good. But, days. Yeah. But it's, uh, so you're the bank too. It's kind of a nightmare at the same time. Like it's, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's pretty wild. But yeah, yeah, so where I am with the guy is I had a problem with the bending down on the knee thing, and uh, it seemed a little bit too movieish for me. Um, but I kind of felt he was being really sincere. Um, he, his body language checked out for me. I've done a lot of courses on body language and knowing when people are lying and things of that nature. I had to for my position, and his body language and tone of voice and emotions all checked out for me as a guy who's telling a truthful story yeah so for me he was probably the second most impressive out of all the witnesses but yeah i mean we've got a we've got a reserve judgment on this and here's some more stuff yeah i just I, i think one of my biggest things with not just him but all three in general is what i again we weren't we listened to their interviews on the Sean Ryan show. So right. it's not just, it wasn't exactly how their testimony came out. Their sworn testimony was a lot shorter and sweeter. And I almost wish that that's what I heard because, you know, you're, you have a five minute story is awesome as it could be. You know, as in, when you're interviewing somebody, you're going to try to drag it out a little bit and ask some specialized questions. Maybe it does become a little personal. Yeah. But I feel like yeah. in his yeah. case, maybe it became a little bit too personal. You know, yeah. and, and, and That's you know, with the other two to guys too. too because we didn't mention that at the beginning of the show. These guys all testified to this stuff 
and in closed door hearing with Congress too. Yeah, and I'm sure that the during their you know testimony, it, they weren't talking about you know a lot of the stuff that these guys were talking about on Sean's show. I think right. there was you know I'm not saying it was fluff built in, but yeah, it's becoming more personal than factual when you're listening to it on the Ryan show. Yeah, and uh, you know that's sometimes to a detriment because this guy, you know. And he's, he believes he's seen the uh, escort again when he had just bought a new house. He just kind of showed up out of the blue. Nobody knew where he was. And it was just to let him know, like, you know, like we can get to you anytime we want. Right. And, right. and when his father died, the guy paid him a visit, too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I don't know if that's. It's a Men in Black story is really what it is. It's basically what it is. It is more of a more Men in Black story. But, I mean, I can't tell you what that slab was. It's pretty interesting. I wish I wish there was more, but. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, we've had that leaked out in the last few weeks, too, right? That approximately 1955, we've, you know, o- overcome, gra- you know, gravity. So, in other words, we've, since 1955, we've been able to levitate things. Mm-hmm. That that kind of leaked out. Um, and that kind of coincides with Eisenhower's speech, um, where he talks about the military-industrial complex getting out of control and that kind of stuff. So... That kind of rang. It, it kind of rings true with that too, um, you know. So, and I don't know that that you know, no one's ever really talked about that um, about how hard that would be to overcome. But if gravity's a force pulling stuff down, then all you've got to do is you've got to offset that force, right? Yeah. And I think in a little bit of you know physics talk that I've heard about it, the problem is generating enough power. To offset gravity you've got to have this huge amount of power so maybe that's what those black boxes are maybe that's what maybe that's what their their intent is you know so that's always been the toughest part about overcoming gravity is trying to harness enough power in the right way to offset that force well you know it it, this ain't exactly a ufo story but that coral castle are you familiar uh no what's it so, Remind me. <laughs> I believe it's down in Florida. Um, super cool story. I, I don't know enough to just give you all the facts right now, right. but I believe somewhere down in Florida, there's a guy that uh, these huge chunks of coral, he would ha- basically move them all around his property overnight with no machinery. Oh, okay. And they would just yeah. be in these like, really cool positions and sculptures. And nobody he knew how he did it. He was a businessman too, right? He had a big business. I think so. Yeah, I, this was like his hobby. Exactly, but like yeah. it's like how was he moving this stuff, and nobody could figure out how we do it, and he was really tight-lipped about it. But I think this guy was one of some. I, I don't just that Coral Castle story itself. While I well, can't give you the facts the right now, it's fascinating too, forever. Feeds in a lot with like Diana Pasolka's book talking about the saints who were able to levitate, you know, and how levitation is definitely maybe alien technology that you know we've known how to do for a really long time and maybe forgot about it, it kind of leaks into all that stuff that was big a couple years ago mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's definitely interesting man i where i am with this guy is i need to hear more yeah i wish there was more i wish there was more to uh i honestly for how little there was i'm surprised this made it as a as a t- to the testimony to be heard honestly yeah yeah so we want to move on to the next guy. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about Eric Hecker. Yeah. Did you get a chance to take a look at that? I did, and there was so much I did not know about that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
specifically his childhood recruitment into remote viewing special access programs. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I didn't even hear that part of it. I, I, I only heard a little bit of his testimony at the press conference. I did not get a chance to watch his interview with Sean because we've been moving all weekend and I've had movers at the house in Jersey and yeah. now I'm all the way in Michigan. So I never did get a chance to actually sit down and, and talk about it. But you're saying that um, he spoke a little bit about that? Yeah, he, well, he spoke a, yeah, a lot about it. Um, I, when it came to the press conference, he was probably the most impressive to me just because of how unique his you know background and situation was. Um, it fast forward to the Ryan show, you hear him talking and the, the way the uh, interview is set up to like, you know, introduce him is he's talking about like all his, his accolades and stuff and how as a child he was recruited as a to be a remote viewer which gives him special training <laughs> and uh he went quickly from the most the most impressive to easily the most whack. Like the guy the guy's I don't know, he's a nut job man. That's how he's coming across <laughs> to me. The guy's See, definitely I didn't even get to hear that part of it. Oh all man I heard dude was just listen to the problem. first five minutes of, of the show. And you're like, really? what am I getting into? Like, why is it this guy even on here? Yeah, he's a. Uh, I I think honestly, he comes off very schizophrenic to me. Um, see, I I've got to see more of that. That's crazy. I've got to I've got to see more of it because if you just take the press conference, what he talked about being was he talked about being a contractor for Raytheon and being you know basically assigned to uh, the South Pole. Mm-hmm. Or no, Antarctica. I'm sorry. He was assigned to Antarctica, and that the station that's up in Antarctica um, that's supposed to just be for like you know weather and and other things of that nature or research is actually a defense weapon, and it's an earthquake making machine. Oh, I wish it was that. I wish it was that simple, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm telling you, within 20 minutes, like he's honestly the only one I had to just turn off. I couldn't take it in. I couldn't. I couldn't listen after a certain point. But he, he didn't say any of that in the press conference. Oh man, None yeah. So he starts off real strong with the remote viewer thing. Um, then he talks about how basically his career and becoming a firefighter and all. And he was like a he was this plumber at a super exclusive island for the wealthy. <laughs> and then after that, he was uh, you know. <laughs> You end up in Antarctica as a fly- firefighter, you know. But he's saying he yeah. had access to everywhere on the compound, and it was this thing uh, simply an earthquake weapon? No, it tracks neutrinos or something in space, which is the air traffic. He said it's the air traffic control facility of the world for UFOs, <laughs> for one thing. And not only that, it's a weapon that can uh, put voices inside of your head. So this is where I started thinking, like, oh man, I'm so, I, I, I feel terrible, but I think the guy's schizophrenic. But right, right. Uh, he's saying that, like, you know, the way the technology is, and I'm, I'm not totally discounting this because this could totally be the case somewhere on some timeline in the world. But he's saying that that weapon can basically mimic your own voice and then put, and then basically it's he that can be transmitted to anybody's skull anywhere in the world, your own voice. To tell now, you to here's, things. here's the really weird thing, right? Now, did you watch any of the press conference? Yeah. Okay. Did you see the photos he had in um, Antarctica? I saw a few of them, yeah. Okay. So he's literally, you know he's in Antarctica. Yeah, I'm not, you know he's yeah, I don't doubt that facility. at all. 
Correct. Right? It, it's that's so weird, and I I didn't hear the interview with Sean, so I you know I I don't know all the stuff you know you know about it. Um, but yeah, that's crazy, man. Now I'm going to have to go and watch the rest of that. No, I'm telling you, in, say, in the press conference, I will say this. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Made in America? Um, yeah. About Barry Seal. Yeah. Okay. So if you if you didn't know all that was true. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I got to say, like, I do believe there could be something like this, you know, out there. I'm not discounting it. But the fact that this one piece of equipment in Antarctica does it all. It's the fucking earthquake machine. It's the it's the skull voice machine. It tracks UFOs all over the universe. It's 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 one it's one antenna. You know, I don't know that it does all that. And then, uh Man, just hearing the guy talk, it, I was very, again, I was very impressed in the press conference with the guy because he kept it short and sweet, but you let him talk. And then, man, he starts to hang himself. Yeah, yeah, pretty. It. This is all my opinion. Maybe there's also, as far as contractors go, I understand like there's a lot of wacky people out there, man, but this guy is definitely. Yeah. It's definitely. I knew a firefighter, and this is no shit, that legally changed his name to Optimus Prime. There's you told me about that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that that was a real thing, man. And <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, firefighters are definitely wacky. Um Right. You got to have a fucked up mentality in the first place to want to do that job. Yeah, and then to want to do it in Antarctica on top of that. Like I I I get it cool. You're just building your you're building your resume up to look awesome and for the accolades, but right. at the same time like he really started getting into things where he's not an expert, and that's where he was kind of hanging himself to me. Like, at one point, you know, Sean's like, well, can you describe how it works? He's like, yeah, that's why I know it exists, because I found the instruction manual. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's like, that's why that's why I'm coming out, because I found this instruction manual. Like, everything, everything in the government has an instruction manual, and that's how I know it does the earthquakes. Uh, and it's, it's pretty wild, but at one point... He's literally here trying to explain quantum entanglement. And it's like, you're a firefighter, dude. You're not a physicist. Why don't you just stick to what you saw? I wish it was just they stuck to their story and it was more right, like, right. you know, the press conference where it was just, you know, a factual uh, the story without any speculation on their part. Because as soon as they start speculating and going into their own background, the worse it sounds to me. And again, yeah. I, I thought I wanted so hard to like one of these dudes, you know? And right. if, you know, I'm, I'm still not sure about Herrera. We'll get to him in a minute, but. But you know about Hecker. <laughs> yeah, Hecker, man. Yeah, he's not far from Optimus Prime, I'll tell you that. And I thought it was funny, too, all the patches on the shirt. <laughs> yeah, you sh- so you show up wearing your, <laughs> wearing, like, your work shirt. Like, it's kind of crazy. I was yeah, trying to read them. There were some I couldn't read. patches all over it. Yeah, like, I don't know, like some sort of astronaut. Like, come on, man. You said it yourself. You were a plumber and a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to watch the rest of it now. I still didn't get a chance to see it, but I'm, I'm going to love watching it now. But yeah. So we need to hear more from him. Let's let's just say we need to we need to hear more there, too. And you're right. You know, Greer isn't saying that these are his most impressive witnesses and all that other good stuff. He's just saying, you know, that it's uh, these these represent five percent of the witness list. Yeah, I can almost see Greer like shaking his head at these guys, knowing that they're right. coming out with all this extra shit that was like beyond the the story. You know? Yeah. 
yeah. could kind of see him like in the background just rubbing his head like saying like man i wish they would just shut up it's like it's, it doesn't help his case it really don't man oh god that's too funny so yeah let's talk about the last guy <laughs> let's talk about mr herrera um so basically let me recap his story uh he's a marine um and it's 2009 and he is on a humanitarian mission to indonesia after the tsunami to uh he's on a boat um and they're there to kind of help with the tsunami and you know all the devastation um he gets sent out with a group of five other guys to go um never really actually clear what mission he has i don't think it was clear do you think it was clear yeah it's it seemed pretty clear to me he was just oh, aircraft what, overwatch what was he saying what was he saying he was going to do aircraft overwatch okay okay so basically on so, onloading and offloading supplies and you know for humanitarian assistance but right. what happens is you, obviously that's coming in via aircraft when an aircraft lands you have to have an overwatch team basically secure the aircraft for, for one and then you know maintain security over the operation whether it's onload or offload and basically just overall security for that aircraft yeah so he basically that's what he sent out to do do you want to describe the rest of the story can you you recap it i want to say off the bat that with herrera i do believe he saw something he can't explain i 100 percent believe that i just don't know that he saw what he thought he saw um right so they, they go out and basically they get to the top of this hill and they look he looks over the hill and on the one side of the hill there's a bunch of helos that are flying nice and loud and all that other good stuff. And on the other side of the hill, he looks down into a very convenient clearing. I thought the clearing was pretty convenient too, especially in Indonesia, right? A, a country that's got a lot of jungle. Yeah. There's this clearing, and he sees this black object, and it's basically rotating. Um, and he says he's about two clicks out. When a, you know, that's a lot. It. That's pretty far out in the jungle situation. Right, right. So he's about two clicks out when he sees it. Um, they start to head towards it to investigate it, and they get one click out, and they get uh, basically surrounded by two groups of guys who are wearing uniforms, but they're not very well marked. And you want to take the story from here? Yeah, I just I I do want to throw out before they even got to this point. The biggest, you know, I I talked to a couple of my other buddies who are also ex-military about this, um, super interested in the subject, and you know they're. They're really looking at the news like we are. You know, they're pretty excited to see what comes out. But also, these guys were able to poke as many holes in the story as I was. And right. one of the biggest things that everybody agrees on right off the bat is, number one, why are you leaving your post? You know, you're situated on one side of the slope, and this parallel operations going on the other. Why are you even leaving your post? And furthermore, you're leaving your post when you have no comms. Now, in most situations, I would say 99 percent of situations there's a constant phrase that you know that's drilled into us no comms is no ops if you don't have comms we don't have ops you know and and he's saying they didn't have any yes he's saying they were sent out without them yeah establishing comms is the most important thing you can do in any sort of operation like that um and that's why there's so much equipment that's first of all when comms go out because that happens inevitably it will happen but there's always not even a backup com, but there's usually a backup to the backup. So right. it's, I find clear, it very hard 
that they didn't have He's comms out they there. were never even given Cor- comms at correct. the very beginning. Correct. That's what he was saying, which I know that's – I either – they rushed this operation and it wasn't planned out. Maybe somebody in charge didn't know what was going on. Somebody dropped the ball somewhere. But once comms couldn't be established, the option never – it should have been frozen until that was the case. I'm not saying to cancel the operation, but just to put everything on hold. And go through your checklist, man. Go through your checklist and either, A, fix that first line of comms or go to your Bravo or Charlie set of comms, which is, you know, just your backups. Yeah, and, I, you know, just so everybody knows, one of the most important things about it is, you know, you don't have some kind of friendly fire incident. Exactly, exactly. Now, it's it's not strange at all for parallel operations to happen, um, especially with, you know, yeah, we're in an area for humanitarian assistance, right? Um, but that may not be the only reason. A lot of times, you know, not to make it sound bad, but we are op- we're an opportunistic military. And if we can provide humanitarian assistance, we absolutely will. But if there's something else, any other intel we can gain from that operation, we're going to do it. Exactly. And Indonesia is one of those places where... <clears throat> There's a lot of terrorists that are sent there to train. Correct. So, I mean, it, he said right off the bat that they were briefed on how many high-value targets were in the area. Okay? It's it's not... We do snatch-and-grab operations all the time. It's, it's something we do. It's not... We're not even doing it illegally. We're operating within, you know, legality when, it, when this happens. But we will totally grab people... Um, and kidnap them more or less, uh, put a sack over their head, and then uh, take them to a compound somewhere for interrogation to get whatever intel we think we can get from them. Um, Absolutely. But the, it's, and, the, and the best thing about it is the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Think about how many great pictures there were from the Middle East of guys like with one eye open and one <laughs> in a frumpy t-shirt with their hair all screwed up. Yeah, we do yeah. it all the time, man. All exactly, the time. It, it is going to happen in the early hours of the morning. It, it, I can't tell you how many times I've seen helicopters leave and come back. It, and this is at Fobs overseas with just you know come back with tons of detainees getting marched off the airfield with you know right. sacks over their heads. The same thing, uh, even even on the even in the Navy, we saw that on the carrier they would come back with people. It, it's right. it's standard, and it's not uncommon for parallel operations in the sense that you're somewhere providing humanitarian assistance. Yes, correct. That's true. And it's not uncommon for at the same time we're going to take advantage of that situation and try to round up some, you know, HVTs or high-value targets. You know, we're trying to, yeah, we're providing assistance, but we're also going to assist ourselves and grab some intel. Right. You know what I mean? Which he was was heavily alluding to during his interview. Yeah, and it's not like... not all these guys aren't kept. They're not all automatically detainees. They may just be interviewed and then taken back. You know, it's it's not like we're keeping them or you know killing them off and dumping them somewhere. That's that's definitely not happening. So there's one part of the story I'm, I'm going to skip some parts to jump to, and then I'll come back to the other stuff. Is a uh, long story short, when he gets to the other side of this, he left his post, went through the jungle. They're traveling through the jungle in a room clearing formation, which makes absolutely no sense. Um, and then they get corner flanked by two other teams, and they're outmanned by two extra personnel, one per each corner flank. Right. So, okay, you get flanked like that, you're dead to rights. You're going to surrender your weapons, basically. 
even Marines, which I feel like a lot of them may want to fight out that situation, but you're doing too many things wrong at one time. You've left your post. You don't have comms. You're you're gonna you're probably not gonna engage a target without comms. I mean, you're looking at Leavenworth time for that situation, and especially when they're talking in American dialects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can tell it's obviously another. It, it you come to you've been outflanked by two teams wearing all black uniforms, speaking an American dialect. They know exactly where your IDs are. They know exactly that there's other operations going on that are in comms. They possibly look like they're doing things the right way. That's probably those are defense contractors, 100%. Right. And you know it. You know what I mean? You're not going to engage other Americans. No. Uh, for one, and for number two, is these. It's likely. Uh, very likely that everybody that's a defense contractor, those teams that stop flanking you is way trained, way more trained than you are. They're all probably ex-military, and they've definitely gone through way more extensive training. Yeah, even as a Marine, they've gone through more. So I understand yeah, how... Let's remember this, too, about Herrera and his crew. You know, it's 2009. There's a lot of more important things going on in the world, um, and he's picked to go on a humanitarian mission. Yeah, and he has no combat experience, so uh, it's it's probably he was probably super hyped up for this. Uh, you know, it's the first action he's seen his entire career, and maybe things just go off the rails. It's all started without comms, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and we'll, give, we'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt up to that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but one thing that stuck out to me is that he basically gets on the other side of this clearing. He describes. Uh, he describes a hexagonal-shaped UFO, but also these containers being loaded up into it, more or less. Uh, and when asked when asked what was in the containers, somebody says humans. So now it becomes a human trafficking story. Uh, first of all, when do you ever... If, if you're not speaking in the biological context, when do you ever say... Like, when do you ever just say humans? I, I almost never do. Like, all right, I went fishing. I I saw twelve other humans. Who says that? Right, you say people. Yeah, exactly. So now, because the guy that said that the basically that what was being loaded was humans, Herrera's saying, okay, it's human trafficking. And I'll tell you right now, between any any of our ex-military listeners, the amount of trainings we've had to do on human trafficking, how to recognize it, how to thwart it, and how to report it. Is, is ridiculous. We have to do it almost monthly. They take human trafficking super seriously, and I'm not saying that that's what was happening. I do believe it was probably a snatch and grab operation, but I don't consider that the same as human trafficking, even though it literally is in a in a literal sense. That's what's happening. Yeah, and let's remember this too. It, it doesn't dawn on Mr. Herrera that that might be what's going on. He believes that it's drugs that they're getting off giving out of Indonesia drugs or some kind of weapons. He definitely saw weapons, but the way he comes up with the human trafficking thing is when he starts to talk to other career witnesses. So that's where he got the human trafficking thing from. That was a bug that was put in his ear. Yeah, and and speculation on his part. So I'm I'm going to discredit that right off the bat. I I absolutely believe 100% it was more of a snatch and grab operation than the traditional human trafficking in the sense that like some people are being sold off into sex slavery or something you know right right uh just that was something that 
I really didn't like about that story that stuck out. I just wanted to get, you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with the way snatch and grab operations go, but that's the thing. It's been a thing and it's going to be a thing, but you know, those, those people are usually released. It's, it's an interrogation situation. Um, and it's absolutely necessary to be honest with you. Yeah. And he, he describes this, this thing that he sees, Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. He says that he sees an octagon shaped craft that is floating above the floor of the clearing. And that at the top of it is a pyramid shaped object. Um, So that's like a four sided pyramid shaped shaped object at the very top of this octagon shaped object that's kind of floating and rotating. Yeah. And he said it was a he said hexagonal. So I guess oh, six-sided, yeah. Okay, you said it was hexagonal. Okay. And then underneath it, there is a base. He said that he thought it was a concrete base and that these trucks were driving up onto it with these half-connex boxes and unloading them and then some weapons too. And they were loading them onto what he thought at that time was a concrete platform. Yeah. So that's just to give everybody a, an idea of what, he says he saw that was behind these guys that got the drop on him. Yeah. And, you know, I told you basically what I thought that could have been. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So there's there's this piece of equipment that, you know, pilots are going to be more, specifically helicopter pilots are going to be more familiar, familiar with, but it's called a container mag. And what it is is uh, it's a piece of equipment that's set up. Now, it's not hexagonal. It's 100% octagonal it's eight-sided but it's a cage that you put together that holds three connex boxes and it's usually dropped off in crate form and then built and there's literally a small crane or like a you know a hitch at the top that will pull these magazines or pull the containers up into this magazine and once this has three or four containers it collapses on itself and it can be you know hauled out by you know, however many aircraft it takes to support it. So, you know, one to two schnooks possibly. Which is exactly what he described being on the other side of the mountain. Yeah, so I'm not sure that he saw. I I think I know what he saw, but I don't know 100%. He also described it like flying away super quickly, which, you know, like shooting straight up and then flying off at an incredible rate of speed, which, you know, aircraft that is that are going to be hauling off that container mag are not going to be doing that there is likely going to be helicopters that don't perform that way acrobatically so what he says happens is he says that the bottom part levitates up and connects to the top part and then that's when it flies off and he was asked, like, at what speed? And he just pulls a number out of his ass. He's like, uh, four, five, six thousand miles an hour. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. what he says. He goes, four, five, six thousand miles an hour. So, yeah. I mean, Nobody, you know, we don't know. Yeah, don't if, know if it was a helicopter, if anything, any kind of sling load operation, it's going to be pretty slow. I'll tell you, nobody's flying off at any kind of high speed with a with three entire containers. Right. This could be embellishment. This could be the embellishment part of the story. It could be. And, you know, like all these guys, they definitely all seen something. But again, I wish it was just, I wish that their interviews were kept to what they saw 
and no speculation on their part because that's when it gets a little bit, you know, to me, that's when everything goes off the rails. Uh, That's why it sounded so much better in their testimony in the press conference versus their interviews on, you know, Ron's show. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, the reason we have this situation now with all these people coming forward is because now, you know, you can be a whistleblower um, and you're not going to lose your, first of all, you're not going to be sued. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to be sued for, you know, disrupting your NDA <coughs> or any former agreement or anything like that. Um, you're not going to lose your clearances and you also won't, most importantly, won't lose your uh, time served in the military or any benefits you get from it. Yeah. And also now it's, it's the way this all came out recently in the NDA act that was passed last year. This it was, this was basically built into it. So if you're wondering like, well, where were these people back in, you know, 2012 or whatever? I mean, probably maintaining secrecy because whatever they thought they saw, they couldn't talk about. So this whistleblower act has been, you're going to see a lot more people like this coming out because now they can freely without, you know, worrying about all this extra stuff. Plus, I think uh, the way these last ODI reports are set up, we're talking about, you know, the physiological effects of humans in the presence of UAP, for example, that like maybe a lot of the people a lot of these people want to make medical claims and it's another good point for insurance reasons and they have no means to do that yet so i think that's also being built into this is that maybe this could be for insurance purposes as well i know that's yeah and we people need to remember we have this other part of this is this aaro that's been set up this latest and greatest group Mm -hmm. that's been set up that is set up to report back to Congress. So it's an independent group that is set up as made up of uh, different individuals. And its sole purpose is to investigate all this to the fullest and report back to Congress. Anything so that's like an anything that's title 10 or below. Of Congress. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the only problem with that is that there's title 50 programs that the Title Ten Arrow team is never going to be read into, right? You know, and I, I don't think a lot of people are putting that together. But if there is a crash retrieval program, it's probably Title Fifty. Yeah, they're not going to find out about it. Yeah, which is basically what Grush is saying. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got a it's it's a good start, but it has to go farther. And you know what? It's a really good bipartisan piece of legislation. You got to give them credit. You know. That piece of legislation that was stuck in there that started all this stuff was both Democrats and Republicans working together. Yep. And getting this law passed, and it's 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 good for us. It's good for the American people. It's yeah, an it's, interesting time, man. It really is. It's it's a really good, interesting time. Yeah, and you know, honestly, the division on the UFO subject isn't. It's not a partisan division like it is seen in the rest of America. It's more like a it's more like an ideologies division, but you know, at a time where the United States is so divided, like it's it's nice that they can come together on something, even if it's as bizarre as this. Yeah, you know. Let's get back to some other parts of Herrera's story that didn't ring true too, specifically talking about weaponry, because it was funny when you mentioned this. 
Oh, yeah. Um, this is something else I was talking about with my buddies, you know, also ex-military. Um, yeah. The guy was talking about his loadout, like, or, well, he was really, he spent a lot of time talking about that loadout. And he talked about his preference for having the 240 saw, which is, you know, an amazing weapon, but uh, it's a bulky weapon. And almost nobody wants, oh, nobody wants that weapon. You have to have it. As part of an Overwatch team, there's going to be a 240 gunner, but <laughs> nobody really wants it because I mean you're you're carrying around not only the bulkiest weapon, you're not exactly mobile with it, but the amount of ammo that comes with it because it's it's meant to, you know, if if you concentrate fire with that thing, whatever you're aiming at, you're going to shred it for one. But it's meant to lay. It's it's an intimidating weapon for one, and it's usually a cover fire situation. The people exactly. that you see carrying the 240 for the most part, I don't know anybody that that prefers it. To be honest with you, um, no, because you have to get down, you have to set it up on a tripod. Yeah, and know, I was telling you, the, the guys that so you're 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 no longer a moving target. Yeah, there's a there's. It's funny when you he mentioned it because what he basically said was he preferred it. Yeah, he made it seem like it was like he custom built that loadout for himself. You know, and he also said this too. He said he preferred, you know, belt ammo weapons. Is what he what he said. Yeah, he pre- so preferred that. I mean, and it did, it didn't ring true. It was strange. Yeah, you're gonna have more hang fires, uh, you know, with the with the belt driven ammunition system. Uh, there's so many problems with it. We've we've we're all gonna. It's almost the way I was describing to you is the two forty is almost like a rite rite of passage. You're going to be at some point where you're the you're the low man on the totem pole, mm-hmm. and that's the person that usually ends up with the two forty. Right. Um. I've told you we all have this. You'll you'll know people that have had the two forty before because everybody has to train on it for one. But uh, we all have this same scar on our left arm because the way these casings come out of this thing red hot and uh. Usually your sleeves are rolled up, and it hits your forearm. If if when you're shooting the prone, these casings kick out and hit your forearm, and after a while, you know you just get burnt there. Everybody has this weird burn, so it's it is a it is a thing. When you notice it on other people, you're like, all right, I I see what happened there. You know, yeah, it's almost this like is even, when you mentioned it the other day. This is why it's even more funny for me, right? Because I'm not ex-military, but my son was in the Marines and did two tours in Fallujah. Right, I have yeah. two nephews, one dead and one alive, that were rangers. Okay, one still, still a ranger. One was killed in Iraq back in, ironically, two thousand nine. Um, so I come from like a lot. I kick around a lot of Marines and and that kind of stuff in my family. And the only other person that I've ever heard tell me that they preferred that weapon was my son. <laughs> <laughs> He, he literally came home from the first tour talking about how proud he was that they let him carry the saw. And and I don't think he got it, that he was carrying it because he was low man on the totem pole. But he absolutely loved it. But it's very rare for somebody to want to tote this thing through the jungle. It's just incredibly heavy. Yeah, and listen, I mean, most people know a Marine. You know what I mean? I just happen to know a ton of them. But you got, he had these guys that are super gung-ho that – you know, if, if they got the 240, man, they're gonna they're gonna carry it to the to the best of their ability and be you know proud about it too. But right. you know, um, man, I'm gonna tell you right now, it sucks after an hour. 
after an hour with the C40, you're like, man, you're you're ready to make rank so you can move on to the M4 or something because uh, it's just just carrying around sucks. But uh, yeah, but you do also feel like well, that was the other thing too. Remember <laughs> that they were, he was talking about how they had M16s and they didn't have M4s. The 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 M16A4 was what they were given. Yeah, which those, that was another part of that. Also, was strange to me because right? by that time the 16s had been phased out. Like, because two two weapons I start, I came in 2001 and I got out in 2010. I started contracting in 2010 till 2018, more or less. But uh, when I came in the Navy, we had Berettas for our sidearms. Those eventually transitioned over to Sig P226s, and the 16 was replaced quickly by the M4. Yeah. So it's yeah, especially by two thousand. He never talked about an M an M sixteen A four. He never he never talked about it. It's probably because he, he had an, the M four. He had an M four. <laughs> yeah. Is what he had when he wasn't carrying a two forty like an idiot. He he had the M four. Yeah, and I do want to say just for the record, when you are carrying that two forty though, it, while it sucks, like you look the most badass out of your unit. It's true. So there is that. Like, there's definitely pros to it. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh man. But usually, it's, it is usually nobody, to my knowledge, nobody volunteers for it. It's usually you're voluntold that you have the two for it. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's usually it, the lowest was ranking too. guy. He, you know, he, but then again, we don't know about humanitarian missions. Yeah, I sure know? don't. Because I, I, I never, I, I was never on. part of any humanitarian missions, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah. But I'm not surprised that we would, you know, basically have a parallel mission where. Or parallel operations where you're doing a humanitarian mission in conjunction with a snatch and grab operation. That seems especially like those LZs, if they were only two clicks away, that would make the most sense to me. <laughs> yeah. So something I was thinking about with the no comms um, the other day after we got off the phone and we were talking about it. Do you think that maybe there were no comms because that piece of equipment was there? Is that a possibility? Maybe it could disrupt that piece of equipment, or if we're talking about the equipment they being, would have heard that piece of equipment and those guys that were using it. Well, I mean, if it was truly container mag, then that would have no bearing on the comms whatsoever. But if it was a, you know, maybe it was hexagonal and maybe it was a UAP, uh, then yeah, for sure that that may be the case. But you you also have multiple channels of comms, right. so. Like I would, I would assume if they were in comms, then they would know about the other team. The other team was probably surprised that okay, maybe maybe the other team was in comms and following orders. (laughs) You know, maybe they were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, and you know, they're just doing their own offload situation. And then here's this: who who the fuck is this rogue team coming through the jungle from the other side of the slope? Right. Of course, you're gonna divide and flank them, figure out what the fuck's going on, and. I, I, I can see it from both sides, honestly, but I don't yeah. understand how you even continue that operation without without comms. That's the, one of the most bizarre. The second most, the other thing that's crazy to me is why after all this happens, you know, you're already, we're always told don't do more than one thing wrong at the same time. Okay, so if you don't have comms, that's enough right there. That's enough. Stop the ops. All right. If you don't have comms and you're leaving your post, <laughs> If you don't have comms and you're leaving your post and you're being relieved of your weapons and identification from another team, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot at once. <laughs> you're like, you're, his whole 
Overwatch team was really screwing the pooch, man, from the sounds <laughs> of it. Well, the, the other thing, too, we, we talked a little bit about, you were talking about that piece of equipment, because what he describes is he describes a piece of equipment that's sort of kind of like a iPhone now back in 2009 when this happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's... <laughs> they're trying to scan the IDs. So he was like, talk look... Talk a little bit about that. This is just uh, just a quick observation. I mean, <laughs> he was like, yeah, there's uh, they took pictures of our IDs, but this is back when we had flip phones and blueberries, and whatever they used was small and rectangular to take the photo. And I was like, you mean like a fucking camera? <laughs> It sounds like a camera was used to take a picture, which what's crazy about that? Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's of course, man. Like by today's standards, that's it's almost weird to see somebody pull out a point a point and shoot. But like back then, that would have been totally normal. Okay, there's something rectangular. It's probably a point and shoot camera. It's yeah, probably like your standard run of the mill. These guys had iPhones back, 15 you know, years before. <laughs> yeah, which is definitely That's not like kind of what he was trying to insinuate. And it, it didn't come across well. Yeah, we had pads back then that were <laughs> they sucked. Um they were probably about an inch and a half thick. Uh the backlighting on them sucked. They're all basically like two colors, you know what I mean? They weren't even full color and it, right. they weren't touch pads even. You had to use a stylus and you really had to like you really had to definitely push hard on that stylus to make it even work half the time they didn't like usually you wanted something more analog with buttons on it back then anyway yeah and there's a, those there's first the pads in the stylus and the battery in the stylus starts to wear down and yeah, yeah they yeah, damn sure didn't have cameras the on them <laughs> they damn sure didn't have cameras on them i know that no, but uh no. yeah there was it was like a super rudimentary you know tablet i suppose that was the other thing too right let's talk a little bit about his camera he said that he had a camera out with him he took a camera out with him which i thought was odd but then i remember all the pictures that my son took and all the video stuff that he took on his laptop and stuff like that like they would be in the middle of ops and my son would be you know taking video of like because what he did was he went to a lot of um those iraqi police stations uh in the beginning in fallujah that's what they basically would do they would go to those police stations Mm because they were somewhat armored and they would take them over and there would be some kind of firefight on the roof and everybody be, you know, fighting except my kid who would have his laptop out and taking a picture of it. So I guess it's not <laughs> that odd, but he said he had a, a point and shoot Panasonic camera that would take little bits of video, but not like a great deal of them. And he brought it with him on this on this uh, expedition. And somehow the guys who get the drop on them that are wearing the black uniforms that can't be identified don't find his camera yeah and he had taken pictures of the object um no video but had taken still pictures of it and he gets back to the boat and realizes that he has this camera he then doesn't go back and review the pictures and he says that he doesn't do that because it's such close quarters on the ship so the close quarters on the ship that makes sense um not to me but yeah but you would think you would find some corner of the room where you could put your back against the wall and, as you know, look at what you photo photographed. Yeah. And he never at any point, he says that the camera gets confiscated. Um, and Sean asks him, well, did you take a look at those pictures? And he says, no, I never did. That's 
tough to believe. Yeah, it's super tough to believe because, <clears throat> one, you can totally you have privacy on a boat. Um, it ain't much privacy. Like, it's literally a curtain. But when you get in your rack, you know, granted, you're surrounded by the, most birthings, we call them. You got 90, you got 90 guys in there with you. It's a 90-man birthing or um, it, at the very least, you're going to have at least 40 people in the room with you if you ain't an officer. And, right. you know, you're you're sleeping in these, we call them racks, but it's basically like uh, three high-stacked bunk beds. It, but instead of a mattress, you have a, a, a locker, more or less. It's a flip-up locker where you can put all your personal gear outside. It, it is for personal gear, so it would be for, like, cameras. And you can lock it. It's right. That's what it's for. You know what I mean? You have your gear lockers, which is for like your actual your gear, and then you have your personal locker, which is your rack locker. So it's basically everything under. And you know, you're in it. You have maybe about you can't sit up because you have there's the next rack is above you. So you have about I don't know twenty inches. You have you have enough room to get into a coffin shaped area, and then you have right. these sliding curtains. So nobody's gonna see whatever you you'd pull out your camera. But furthermore, like, this is something I keep wanting to say, and I keep getting sidetracked myself. But the other thing that's the most unbelievable to me about this story is that you did all this. You had this experience, right? And you get back, and you didn't tell your gunny? Because for one thing, like, that's... Because either A, you know how bad you fucked up, or it, it has nothing to do with the, the, the comms because you're eventually you're reunited with your team after the operation, right? He's back on that ship, whatever. He's got that gunny with him. He would be telling, especially, he would he would have to go up the chain of command just to at least be like, what the fuck did I see out there? You know what I mean? Right. And then the gunny would be like, well, why did you guys, He, the gunny would be jumping into shit. Like, why'd you leave your post? It would be a lot more than that. He may have been scared that he was going to get articled or, you know, put on restriction or something. But he would, I would assume that he would at least tell his gunny. Because if he did, yeah. there'd be more trouble down the line if he ever found because out. Because he's going to find out. Yeah. Especially if what happened, what yeah. he says happened, happened. In that situation, even if you fucked up, you're going to you're going to at least the next person above you to let either them decide. You don't decide whether to tell them or not. You just tell them. And you let them decide whether or not to sweep it under the rug or, you know. Exactly. Or, you know, make an example out of you. But it, at the very least, I would expect him to go to his gunny. And go to his, and now I'm thinking if, if you're the gunny, the very first thing you're going to be like, well, show me that fucking camera right now. Exactly. You know? Right. Not to mention the fact that you've got this stuff on his camera. Don't you want to double check yourself? Yeah. Like, did I really see what I think I saw? Well, look, man, did, I had, I I've had some, <laughs> yeah, I've had some, you know, I guess regular for the, for the time, some cameras that were, you know, pretty decent, but still couldn't take night photos you know, in right. best conditions, you there's a lot of night photos you can't get to turn out. I could see if it was something like that. If you just say, yeah, like, you know, those pictures end up being shit. You couldn't make anything out. But here they are, if you want to look at them. Right. But just to, just for the camera to go missing, basically. And, you know, it, it was never taken from you from that team to begin with. How they even... It, nothing, none of that story's adding up to me. And also, just Herrera, in general, he really went into that interview with the chip on his shoulder, defensive off the jump. And he got to a point where he got pretty emotional about it and was like, yeah, all these guys on, on Reddit, you know, they can't tell me I was there. You know what I mean? Right, right. But, he's like, so many. He starts overusing the F-note. 
and yeah. he's, you know he's being bravado just for the sake of being bravado to sort of kind of be like you know he was putting on a front towards the end of the interview yeah and i think that's because so many people you know that have been in situations like that know how absurd his story was and probably was calling him out on it like if you if you go there right now if you look at that video there's countless ex-military in those comments just destroying his testimony mm-hmm. because of how if he if it really happened the way that he says it happened then he's kind of a dirtbag <laughs> you know what i mean like you don't you don't operate without comms and you damn sure don't leave your post and you definitely don't do both at the same time and then when you do both what i think could have happened too is maybe he they left and got lost in the jungle cuz this isn't this isn't a jungle team man like we have we have right. people that go to you know like mountain training for a reason but you know this wasn't a jungle team <laughs> right. this was just an right. overwatch team so now you got them that's why they're moving in this room clearing formation through the jungle maybe that got lost and had no idea how to get maybe just a click was too deep in the jungle for them to get back maybe they yeah. just couldn't maybe they you know only intended to leave the post for a couple minutes and it got out of hand and they had to make up a crazy ass story to you know you've you've heard those people that sometimes they're they get caught up in a lie or something that they did wrong and instead of just admitting it it gets so out of control that it it just becomes this unbelievable story you know and i feel like that's totally what what happened here or that's a possibility but like i said when you look at his body language and shit um he does like he has an idea of what he's talking about and i i honestly he does come off as sincere but I think he definitely saw something, but I don't yeah, think he it's may very what he well described. have saw what you you said he saw. That's a very distinct possibility. Well, if you don't know what you're looking it, at. Just not yeah. know what he was looking at. Maybe he got a glimpse of it, and maybe it wasn't as long, uh, you know, a look as he described. Yeah, there's no telling, but uh, I, I do believe he saw something. Everything he, else is embellishment. Yeah, and that's why again, I wish I wish I only got the testimony from these guys not you know anything extra the long form interview yeah yeah it was almost I mean, detrimental look, these, are, these are exciting times if that's the tip of the iceberg then you oh know, yeah maybe i don't want to sound like i'm this. complaining i was super excited for these interviews like i'm not kidding man i was like a kid on christmas when these whistleblowers started coming out it all started with rush like right. i was i almost was i was i didn't want to let myself get too excited for him because i just assumed it was going to be disappointment and, you know, there was a, a, a error disappointment because it's all, you know, hearsay more or less. But either way, that really got me hyped up. And now I know that more whistleblowers are going to come out. That got me hyped up. I knew about these guys. Um, you know, there's still, it's not just Greer's whistleblowers. There's other whistleblowers on deck ready to come out and, you know, also give their testimony. Wouldn't it be funny if Herrera and Long are not telling the truth and Hecker is? <laughs> Dude, yeah, and, and then like, <laughs> it may very well be. Yeah. Who knows? Again, I'm all, I'm going off my gut for these. Um, I yeah, do that's tend what to. You can do, man. I don't want to be the. <laughs> I I we had a conversation before we did this show, even like where I I don't want to discredit these guys. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to, especially you know, other ex-military right. guys, and like because they're my brothers this, in a way. This is why you're on the show. <laughs> yeah. You have a very unique ability to take what they say and analyze it 
It's a lot of people that haven't been in the, had the training that you've had and been in the situations you you've been in. So we owe it to the audience to definitely use your experience, your life experience, to break this shit down. Look, it, it's the tip of the iceberg, right? He says that's five percent of his witness list. All right, well, let's hear more. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not saying it's we're not saying these guys are lying. We're just saying that there's parts of their stories that don't ring true, and. But it's exciting at the same time. And you know what's cool about it for me? If it, if it is a bunch of horseshit, it's incredibly well thought out as to the timeline of what we've seen going on with defense contractors and the military-industrial complex in this country. You know, we've got Eisenhower's famous speech, okay? And then we have Kennedy talking also about the CIA is maybe a little bit out of control. Right. And then you fast forward and you've got Reagan talking about, you know, I often think about how we would all come together if we had one common enemy. And maybe there already are aliens here. You know, I mean, if you if you think about all those speeches from famous politicians yeah. and you relate it to this information that we're hearing, it really rings true. Yeah. It, you know, furthermore, if you just if you look at it and put it in the context of today's events, like it's almost like a cycle you know what i'm saying like there's political division and unrest and you know something comes you know out the other part dude that i it just don't this just dawned on me the other part that we talk about all the time is we talk about how the ufo phenomenon goes through stages during certain decades like it's a saucer for 10 years and then it's a triangle for 10 years and yeah. if this is true then that would make a lot of sense that especially if most of these sightings are knockoff vehicles created by defense contractors that mimic these crash retrievals that could explain it yeah honestly yeah seriously well we've talked about that we've talked about well cigar shapes were one decade and saucers were Mm -hmm. another decade and triangles were another decade and then we've got that um latest one is those seven lights out and it's funny too because we didn't talk about the the whistleblower who didn't get interviewed by sean ryan the, the dude with the brain damage yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't talk about him but he talks about a holographic machine <laughs> that Raytheon has that it, it they use to project like motherships and huge um, seven light sort of kind of boomerang type shaped vehicles right like the mass sighting we just saw in California yeah which also could be again now I, I do believe that you know, I again, I obviously haven't seen any evidence, but I do believe that there's actual non-human aircraft. I I always have. I know sure. I ain't saying it's coming from Mars. I ain't saying it's coming from the next dimension. I don't know. I just believe there's something out there that's non-human, and I totally believe that most of what we're seeing these days are reverse-engineered versions of that. It's just amazing that you know it's actually come out now. That's that's becoming a built narrative. Um. But, oh man, I forgot the point I was even trying to make. <laughs> well, you know, the funny part is, right, we talk about UFO Twitter all the time, right? And yeah. we talk about how there's that group of people that are like, no, they're aliens. And then there's that group of people that go, no, they're, it's us. Well, maybe both you guys are right. Exactly. That Yeah, you know, honestly, that's the point I was trying to make is that you're, you're dealing with a mix, especially when you're having this many descriptions. Yeah, we got the classic triangle, right? We got the, uh, the chevrons, the... Again, how it started with, uh, you know, these airships back in the Victorian era to cigar shape to the classic flying saucer. 
And, you know, now right. now we got these Tic Tacs and these, you know, other, you know, light phenomena. Triangular craft, silver balls, light phenomena, um, all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's, of cyclical. It's probably a nice mix of, you know, of your reverse engineered stuff, whether it's military or skunk works. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is a cycle. The, these flaps yep. happen. It, that's what I would, I would like to see. Like, it's, it's just, it's just, damn, dude, I'm having a hard time, man. <laughs> okay. I really want to say something. I just can't get it out. Well, the other yeah, thing, the cycle. too, is if you think about what Grush did say, right? And we talked about that on the last show. He had that little blip where he said, yeah, these are, you know, uh, retrieved aircraft and also aircraft that he basically was saying were left there for us to find, right? Or maybe we've perhaps even shot some down. So that that's really interesting. Um, maybe we are working hand in hand with some alien intelligence. Because the other thing about Herrera's story that I that I thought was a little bit fuzzy when he talked about the human trafficking. Yeah. I got out of it that he was talking about that was a Raytheon knockoff vehicle and that Raytheon was the one that were involved was involved with the human trafficking. But then a bunch of people said, No, dummy, it, the aliens were human trafficking humans to another planet and you know <laughs> yeah. that group of black soldiers you know soldiers in black was helping them do that because that was left sort of kind of like vague yeah but, now see that i could more support than the human trafficking in like the right. sex slave sense but right. again i believe fully there was probably a snatch and grab operation but if it was i i wouldn't call it's just it's just a poor term it's just a, to say human it was human trafficking is such a poor term to apply to that situation yeah, it assumes a lot. Yeah, it, it does. So much. But I could, I could more easily see it being an off-world. Like, okay, you know, maybe we owe them so many humans per quarter or something. I, I don't know. Right. Not that I don't think <laughs> we, as a country, have an elite pedophile problem. I think we do. A hundred percent. I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, you know, so I definitely think that. That could be a possibility, but yeah, using human trafficking to describe what he saw as a reach. Yeah, and you know, I do remember the point I was trying to make when I was talking about all this cycle shit. Is that yeah, going back to the guy with the brain damage, I I thought about him, and then I thought about the insurance claims and how it came out in that ODNI report twice that what they're looking at is the physiological effects on humans. But I also, as much as I believe these things could be a mix between you know, non-human intelligence and us whether when i say us i mean the military or skunk works but also psyops um like you were getting that with the uh with the hologram and even that goes back in time through the cycles because if you think about like the battle of los angeles i don't know that that was a solid object i think that was like the first hologram almost just because you had so many spotlights aimed in the same area that almost came off as a hologram you know what i mean like but i i do believe it that maybe that technology exists and they could mess somebody's brain up pretty bad. I mean, some of these problems or some of these, these technologies that are described, you know, do they seem, you know, far out and are you know, holographic machines. All right. I'm recording again. Cool. And I left off. You were just saying like, is this technology really that far? Is it really that hard to believe in this technology more or less for the holograms? Yeah, well, that's that's my point, right? Like, yeah. these seem to be, like, you're holding nowadays an iPhone 14 in your hand, and it's an amazing computer, right? And it's handheld. Does 
anti-gravity and holographic images seem like stuff that we shouldn't already have a handle on if we have this incredible device in our hands. You know, it seems a little, if anything, it seems a little bit odd that we don't. So maybe there is technology (laughs) that's being hidden from the American public. Maybe there is zero point energy. Maybe there are, maybe we did, you know, conquer gravity in 1955. You know, maybe we have been doing holograms for a really, really long time. Yeah, you know? that, that would have been hard to believe when I was a kid, you know what I mean? Or de- now, definitely yeah. back in the in the 50s, you know what I mean? But now, right. Right. you look at it, and like, you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, I'd be surprised if we don't have, you know, a, a crazy hologram maker or anti-gravity technology. Yeah.
Thank you.